Merav Zonzine is a second-generation Israeli-American journalist and editor who writes about Israel-Palestine conflict and its role in U.S. politics. I mean, Israel has $3 billion in aid every year from the U.S., more than any other country. And so, as Bernie Sanders has said, it only makes sense if we're giving them all this money, they should probably be doing less human rights violations and more respect for basic American policy, which has always been against the settlements and for a two-state solution. She was born and raised in New York, but she has spent most of her adult life in Israel. It's really weird because my partner was born and raised in Israel and, you know, he always jokes that I'm the Zionist in the family because I'm so connected to Israel even though I wasn't born there. It's home for both of us. That's really where our home is. It's also where most of our families are. So we'll always be connected to there. We will be speaking mainly on her experiences as an American immigrant living in Israel. Her publications include The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New York Review of Books, The Intercept, Vice News, Foreign Policy, and many more. She's a changemaker who's fighting for equal rights for everyone, which is not an easy feat, if you ask me. I'm so excited to have her on my podcast today. You're listening to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan. Welcome, Merav. So excited to have you on my podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for agreeing to interview from California. I know you're extremely busy and you're also traveling very soon, right? Yes, that's right, on Thursday. Yeah, so let's get this started then. <laughs> so I want to start with your parents. I was reading about you as I was doing some research, and it seems like both your parents are Jewish, but your mom is from Israel and your dad is from Mexico, right? That's right. How did you navigate two very different cultures at home? And in fact, I should also be asking, how did your parents meet? My father is and my mother are both Ashkenazi Jews. So in some way, I mean, his parents had left Poland before the war and they basically weren't let into the U.S. So they went down to Mexico. And so there's actually a quite a large Jewish population in Mexico, both Sephardi and Ashkenazi. And I can explain that for your readers if you'd like. But the the cultural differences are are actually not that great between my mother and father because of that. Um, oh. It's it's more that my mom is a little bit more of a of a rude Israeli and my dad is more of a polite. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the main difference. But yeah, I mean they're both immigrants to the U.S. My mom's family several generations in Israel and before that they were from Russia. They met when my dad was actually my mom's father was an ambassador to Israel. She grew up in Holland and in Mexico. Mexico, actually. So she speaks perfect Spanish. And they met when he was doing kind of like a residency to become a doctor in Israel. And they moved to the U.S. so that he could continue his uh, medical work. And he, be, you know, he became a practicing uh, endocrinologist in New York. And he serves patients from low income communities in the Bronx that deal with diabetes and other issues. And so they moved there thinking that he would finish kind of doing his initial work as a doctor and then move to Israel because that's what my mom always wanted was to move back to Israel. And that actually never happened. So, you know, basically my mom brought us up as Israeli as possible uh, at home. 
And that's true for many immigrant parents. Honestly, I do that with my kids all the time. And I'm sure my kids resent me to some extent. I'm from Pakistan, so I try to instill those values in them, maybe, you know, in a way to preserve my own culture. Your parents instilled a lot of Israeli culture. You went to Jewish private school, then you went to high school to complete your high school in Israel. Yeah, it's a bit of a longer story. I did one year of high school in Israel, and then I actually completed high school back in New York and then moved on my own to Israel when I was 18 because I actually didn't I didn't really identify with American college culture and I wasn't really interested in going to college in the U.S. So I decided then to just move to Israel, which in a weird way, you know, felt like a place that I felt more comfortable in. You know, back then, this was like, the you know, I graduated high school in 1999. And at that time, at least, Israel felt like a very free and open place compared to New York. You know, I had to, like, get a fake ID to have a beer in New York, whereas in Israel, you could buy cigarettes and alcohol and, you know, people went out late at night and it had this more European Mediterranean culture where it wasn't a big deal. So for me, as an 18-year-old, that was much more attractive than, you know, going to some college. (laughs) So did you face any challenges as an American immigrant? Was that something that was part of your consciousness when you moved to Israel? Well, here's the thing. That's why it's funny that you asked me on, because I'm like the most non-immigrant immigrant. immigrant. (laughs) I come from like a lot of privilege and I grew up very much in both cultures of, uh, you know, not even American culture, but a New York Jewish culture. and, And then also an Israeli culture at home where I spoke only in Hebrew. So moving to Israel was not, you know, was not really a major shift. I have a lot of family there and I felt very comfortable there. Of course, it was, you know, it was a big change. And I was there kind of on my own, but it didn't, I didn't feel like an American immigrant at all. But at the same time, you know, I've never felt fully at home in New York and I've never felt fully at home in Israel. So I kind of live, you know, in between in this double life that I know there's a lot of other people who feel similarly to me. So it's not, it's not very unique, but it's both, you know, a blessing and a curse because I can kind of go in between both cultures and write about both cultures, but never fully feel like I belong anywhere. That's so true for so many second generation Americans that I have interviewed. And it just it's an extension of their experiences. Now you are an investigative journalist and you're tackling these extremely complex issues like Israel-Palestine conflict of all the things. What led you on to this path of, you know, pursuit of equality and justice for all and being an Israeli-American? How difficult is it to call out your own community on something so complex? Well, I mean, anybody who reads my work knows that I'm not very shy of uh, calling things out. And, you know, lucky for me, I'm able to do that very freely in both American and Israeli press. But, you know, when I moved to Israel, I had known, you know, I had known Israel from as a child and I had family there and um, you know, it wasn't a new thing for me, but I did grow up in a very Zionist home with, with a Zionist family and very similar to many other American Jewish progressives who kind of start to realize, especially those who have spent time in Israel, you go there and you start to see things for yourself with your own eyes. And, you know, it's very complicated and there's amazing and beautiful things about Israeli society. But the minute you go there, especially when you start going to the West Bank, you realize that the the myth of Zionism, it just starts to break apart. There's just so many, 
issues with how Jewish society understands itself, how it runs, how it operates, and you know how it deals with not only Palestinians but other Jewish, you know, Jewish citizens from other countries, whether it's Ethiopia or Russia or the middle, you know, Jews from the Middle East. There's a, a lot of social hierarchies that go on in Israel. So when I when I moved there. I, I started a BA and I learned, I studied Middle East history and English literature. And I just started to, you know, very slowly in a very gradual process, start to understand that actually, you know, Israel wasn't as, you know, idyllic as I grew up to, to believe. Only much later in the 2000s that I started to become politically active. And mm-hmm. my political activism is what led me into journalism and that was really as a result of becoming active with this group called Tayush, which is an Arab Jewish group that basically it's a bunch of Israelis who go out to the West Bank to show solidarity and do humanitarian and political activism work, uh, mostly in the southern West Bank with like very rural communities of Palestinians who live in the occupied territories. Some of them live when, you know, with no electricity, no water. And this was where my, you know, kind of political awakening in journalism began. Let's take a step back and talk about Zionism for a person like me. I don't have a full grasp or understanding of the word itself because the word has been used in so many different contexts. And as a Muslim American, I'm always struggling in a way to have a better understanding of this. Can you, for people like me, explain what it really means? Sure. And it's a very good question because it really is used and it's become a very charged term. I mean, on one basic level, it was the, it was the national movement for a, a Jewish sovereign nation state in in Palestine. And it was it was created in 1948. Zionism was a movement that began way before that, uh, before the Holocaust in the late 19th century. And it, it's basically a, a reaction to European anti-Semitism and to the ethos of nationalism that was, you know, that was the spirit of the time. In some ways, it's, again, very much the spirit of today. But at the time, there was, you know, Jews were not welcome in many, many places. And as Jews started to leave Europe and, you know, they weren't let into the U.S. after 1924, Um, And there, you know, there was a a real need for there to be a place where Jews could go. So Zionism is, is a historical movement of Jewish nationalism. But today, because of the way that Israel has constructed itself as a state that prioritizes Jewish rights over all other rights, many people find that Zionism is is an ethnocratic regime based on racism, because if you're not Jewish, then you can't move to Israel and get the same rights. So, you know, Zionism is it can it it can be something that we see as something that has already been achieved. It's successful. Israel is a state, it exists, you know. And so you can be an anti-Zionist and believe that Israel needs to change the system and the way it operates without necessarily thinking that it shouldn't exist any longer. And this is kind of a big focal point of the tension in this discourse. Because I, you know, most people that I know who have a problem with how Israel operates, they they aren't saying Israel should not exist. They're just saying that anyone who exists there needs to have equality. But that's, of course, a whole other other issue. Exactly. And thank you so much for this explanation. Talking about Israel, one question that I really wanted to ask you is Israel's complex relationship with religion. And I can somehow in a very interesting way relate to it because I come from Pakistan and Pakistan was also created in the name of religion. And we see that with Israel. I think Israel is the only other nation, if I'm not wrong, that has a very strong relationship with religion. There is no 
distinction in constitution between religion and state, I believe. And please correct me if I'm wrong. How does Israel's religious identity manifest itself in what is happening politically in Israel right now? And do you think Israel can place its democratic values above religion? Well, it is a it is a very complicated issue. I mean, Israel is was founded by European Jews who were basically secular and many of them socialists. They weren't religious at all. Um, and in today in Israel, the the religious Jewish community is a minority. Um, however, the kind of the authority with which Israel claims to be a Jewish state is also very tied into its ability to cater to the Orthodox Jewish community and. There was kind of a, an implicit understanding when, when Israel was created that it would prioritize certain aspects of Orthodox Judaism. For, so, for example, if you want to, you know, civil marriage, burials, that kind of these issues in Israel are still controlled by the, the Orthodox rabbinate. But on the other hand, you also have, ext- you know, extremely progressive gay rights. And, you know, there, so it's kind of this weird mixture where, like, On paper, things are very kind of orthodox, but in practice, um, it's a very secular society. And many, many Jewish Israelis and Jews around the world are not religious at all. So they see their, especially American Jews, a lot of them, they see their Jewish identity as an ethnic, a a cultural, a social identity, a historical one, not so much a religious one. But do you also think that being religious is okay? Because what, what I've noticed currently what's happening around the world is that religion itself is being conflated with intolerance and sort of nationalism, I guess. And that's why when we think about religion and when we think about religious groups, at least I, the way I see it, I think about people who are more intolerant of other religions or cultures. I mean, I do think that in Israeli politics, there's many kind of liberal, secular, upper middle class Jewish Israelis who look at both the settlements, which the, the Israelis who live in occupied territories in the settlements, as if they are, and as well as those who live in Jerusalem, as if they are this lesser religious community that are very fanatic. But first of all, many settlers are not religious necessarily, and mm-hmm. they've moved there for socioeconomic reasons. But also, you know, religious Jews in Israel get a bad reputation. And at the same time, they kind of have this uh, leverage and control over a lot of aspects of life, which is very problematic. But I, I don't think we should judge somebody based on their private religious practices. It, it's a different story when that religion becomes coercive and it becomes part of the state institutions. And that really is a, a big issue. For example, in Jerusalem, in Israel, there's the Western Wall, and there's been a fight for over 25 years by women who would like to also pray at the wall. This is in the old city in Jerusalem, and it's a very controversial topic. But, you know, American Jews, for example, have always been very supportive of this kind of Jewish pluralism where anybody who wants to pray there can pray there and that there shouldn't be, you know, a separation between men and women and these types of aspects. And in Israel, it's a, it's when, when it comes to the government, it's a very controversial topic. And they still haven't granted full equality for women at the wall. So this is um, this is actually an issue that American Jews as a whole fight for much more clearly than, for example, regarding the occupation, which is which is more it's more divisive. You've written 
a lot of articles with regards to violations of human rights targeted at Palestinians. And I wanted to quote something that you wrote for Independent. This is dated March 6, 2019. You wrote, and I quote, the Israeli government has invested millions of dollars in its campaign to combat BDS around the world and has worked hard and largely succeeded to equate BDS, a nonviolent tactic to secure Palestinian rights, with anti-Semitism, arguing that it denies Israel the right to exist. As an Israeli and a Jew, I do not challenge Israel's right to exist, but I do challenge its right to exist as a Jewish, supremacist, undemocratic, violent state that it is. Right. Well, I mean, maybe first I'll explain what BDS is. Is that Okay. So, I mean, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, and of course, a Palestinian can tell you this maybe better than I can, but it's a, a civil. It was started by a bunch of civil civil rights groups, Palestinian civil rights groups, in 2005, and they basically have three major demands. One demand is to end Israel's occupation and the separation barrier wall that has been built there. The other one is full equality for all Palestinian citizens of Israel and the right of return for Palestinian refugees. So this third demand is where it gets a little tricky because if you you know if you allow all the Palestinian refugees and there are millions uh, if they all move back to what is today Israel, then you would no longer have a Jewish majority and. You know, of course, it's more complicated because Israel controls pretty much the entire area between the Mediterranean and the Jordan, and they're they're almost already becoming a minority in that land. But BDS, the reason it is so controversial, even though it is entirely a nonviolent tactic, and the problem in the U.S. with BDS is that it's it the minute you start to outlaw BDS, you're outlawing free speech and the right to boycott is a inalienable right um, that most Americans, you know, really, really hold very dear. It's a free speech issue. It's a freedom of protest issue. So even though there's many Democrats, for example, that are not in favor of BDS, they are very, very adamant about protecting people's rights to engage in boycotts. You know, there are 27 states in the U.S. who have passed some kind of legislation against BDS. The problem with it is that Israel has done a very, very good job of automatically equating anyone who promotes BDS with being an anti-Semite. And the working assumption here that they use is that if you're boycotting the Israeli state, then you're necessarily boycotting or or, or combating the right of Jews to self-determination and national homeland. And if you're doing that, then you're an anti-Semite because that means you're denying their right to exist. Merav, in fact, here I want to ask you, how would you def- define anti-Semitism? If you look at uh, at a lot of Trump's rhetoric, that's anti-Semitic. I mean, that's a good example of anti-Semitism. <laughs> like a, a basic definition is just generalization of any kind of Jewish characteristic of all Jews or just hostility towards Jews as a group or some kind of, you know, characterization or hatred towards Jews as a group. And there are some Jews who also consider it anti-Semitic to conflate Judaism and Israel, you know, which which. This gets to the heart of of another issue, which has to do with how Israel, when it was created, tried to speak for all Jews and tried to encourage all Jews to move there. And as a result, there is a very big blurring of the lines. Like if Israel does something that many people disagree with and then they treat Jews as if they are responsible, uh, Jews outside of Israel for Israeli actions, that can also be understood as somewhat anti-Semitic, at least in, you know, in essence, because that is attributing equality to a, an individual person based on their you know, religion or ethnicity, even though they have nothing to do with Israel. If I am critical of Israeli government's treatment of Palestinians, am I being anti-Semitic? 
No, of course not. Hmm. No, but this is this is the rhetorical spin that the Israeli government, with the help of uh, the American Republican Party, have been kind of pushing. You know, there's resolutions uh, in Europe, in France now, and in Germany. Uh, Germany has its own specific legacy, of course, because of the Holocaust and Nazism. But so it's very sensitive there. But you know, they are passing resolutions that equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. And you have, you know, columnists in the New York Times who also push this narrative. And again, it goes back to this notion of if you deny Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state, then you're an anti-Semite. But of course, what does it mean to deny Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state, right? Like as I said, I, right. I don't deny that right to exist. Also, the right to exist on its own is a kind of a ridiculous talking point because you know if we take that as a as an example then you know the palestinians don't even have a state to begin with so then everybody who's denying their right to a state is anti-palestinian clearly and then if you take it you know to uh, the quebecians or to a million other the kurds you know whoever wants their own state and doesn't have it that means that you know you can coin these terms for them as well. So, you know, part of the issue is that Jewish history is so charged because of the Holocaust and because of continuing anti-Semitism, which which really does exist. I mean, it exists. It's always existed in Europe. It exists in the States. I mean, up until the 60s, Jews were there were quotas to allow Jews into colleges. So there there's a lot a lot going on there. But the, the Israel as a state, you know, it has to be held accountable for its policies. And those policies have nothing to do with an individual Jew living in, you know, New Jersey. What I see in U.S. politics, GOP somehow co-opted anti-Semitism. I feel like the definition of what is anti-Semitic has taken a new form. And it's in some ways very hypocritical because the party is using Jewish community as a token to promote whatever narrative they want to promote. Do you feel that as a journalist? Oh, yes. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, what I mean, I think 2019 was the year that it became extremely clear that the Jews as a group in America were only like 2% of the U.S., but were being used all the time as pawns in this, uh, you know, Democratic-Republican war. Trump has used anti-Semitism, the accusation of it, against his biggest Democratic opponents, against members of Congress who are not anti-Semites. They are just very, very critical of Israel. The biggest Israel lobby, even though AIPAC is, is a very strong pro-Israel lobby, the biggest one is actually Christians United for Israel, which is a Christian group. And Israel has mm. become over time, this symbolic kind of American satellite state that is going to fight off the Arabs and, you know, kind of bringing the Western ideals. And, you know, so America uses Israel for its own interest and Israel uses America's for its interest. So they kind of have a, you know, a win-win situation. But I mean, I've written about how Israel in the in the 80s basically decided to kind of embrace the evangelical support for the country. And that support religiously on a theological level, is completely based on an anti-Semitic understanding. Evangelicals, you know, very broadly believe that Jews have to be ruling in that area so that Jesus can come back. And when he does, and he's resurrected, all those Jews will either convert or die. So, you know, this is um, inherently an anti-Semitic worldview that supports a Zionistic worldview. And so this is, you know, I've, I've written a little bit about this, but there is like an entire kind of segment of politics in America that is both pro-Israel and anti-Semitic at the same time. This is such an interesting view because I never thought about it like that, and especially when you contextualize it in biblical terms. 
talking about Democratic and Republican parties, we are seeing a shift in Democratic Party as well, because we have Congresswomen Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib who are questioning America's unbridled support for Israel, especially military support. What is your view on the shift? And do you think the way Congresswoman Ilhan Omar has articulated her thoughts on Israel are to some extent careless? Because I feel like I, I understand the intent of criticism, but I think to me, some of the stuff that she said, she could have articulated it much better. Yes. I mean, you know, there are some tweets, you know, that she like was basically catapulted her into this national controversy, you know, that were, in my opinion, not anti-Semitic, but certainly careless, as you say, and they could have been articulated much better. And what's interesting is that, you know, Ilhan Omar herself is, She's come out in support of the BDS movement, but she's also come out in support of a two-state solution, and she's also a big Bernie Sanders supporter, and she's you know endorsed him for president. So Bernie Sanders is is not radical on Israel at all. He has a very fair-handed view of it. He kind of has the view that of a, what American policy has been for a long time, which is a two-state solution, and at this point that we need to pressure Israel into doing that. So when you break down and look at what they're actually advocating for, it's not radical at all. It's the same kind of American policy that's been there for a long time. But what has changed is both the power of the pro-Israel lobby and also the politics in Israel have gone way, way more to the right to the point where, you know, people talk about the threat of annexation of the West Bank. But if you are on the ground there, you understand that Israel has already de facto annexed the West Bank. It has a university, an accredited university in the middle of the West Bank. Um, in Ariel in the settlement. And, you know, it functions as de facto a one state. So the Democratic Party is reacting to both human rights violations that are systematic and that are impossible to deny, and also a changing landscape where Israel is doing whatever it wants. And there have to be some kind of carrot and stick approach to this. I mean, Israel has $3 billion in aid every year from the U.S., more than any other country. And so as Bernie Sanders has said, it only makes sense if we're giving them all this money, they should probably be doing less human rights violations and more <laughs> respect for basic American policy, which has always been against the settlements and for a two-state solution. But given all that's happening, how realistic is the two-state solution given the expansion of settlements? I honestly, maybe I'm a skeptic, but I don't see that happening anymore. Yeah, I don't see it happening either. And the, the you know, what really is problematic in the discourse is that like Rashida Tlaib is, a, is for a one state, whereas Omar is more of a two state in their rhetoric. But you know, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what's happening now on the ground. And on the ground, as I've said, it's very clear that it's a discriminatory, unequal, one state kind of de facto regime. So th there are some Israeli politicians on the left who I agree with when they say if there was serious desire to have a two state solution, because there are still many Palestinians who want their own state. And there are many Jewish Israelis who want their own state. So it's not like I'm interested in forcing on them a different solution. But the, the bottom line is that whether you divide up the, the countries this way or that way, everybody will need to be able to have self-determination and equal rights. You know, the most important thing is, is equal rights and human rights. And however you get to that, it doesn't really matter. So, you know, there's a difference between what will actually happen on, the, you know, in the process versus an analysis of the situation. And the only honest analysis of the situation is that Israel rules over everybody between the river and the Sikhs. And so we need to look at it from that perspective. And yeah, there are 
I think 500,000 Israelis living in the West Bank, maybe more, uh, not including East Jerusalem. And so, yes, it will be very difficult to remove them. And it's, you know, if they want to stay there and be under a Palestinian state, that's an option. I mean, there's many options. But what is clear is that the the entity that has made the two-state solution absolutely the most unfeasible is actually Israel. And, you know, so those who claim to be supportive of Israel and of Zionism and, and of a Jewish majority state are actually undermining their own ideology when they continue to support settlements and to normalize the occupation. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. To me, if if we look at two-state solution, it it is in line with the ideology of Israel being a Jewish state. When we look at one-state solution, then Israel may end up not being a Jewish state or majority Jewish state. It will change the demographic of Israel. That's right, which is why I always kind of joke, but it's not really a joke, that Netanyahu is the biggest anti-Zionist right now in the world. I mean, the mm-hmm. Israeli right has very, very clearly, and also, by the way, you know, the Israeli left under Rabin, they've all built settlements. They've all done the same thing. There's been no difference between the labor governments and the Likud governments. And they basically just, you know, use their military power to continue what I believe is ultimately unsustainable um, and certainly not, you know, not in the interests of having a Jewish democratic state. I mean, there's people that argue that you cannot have a Jewish democratic state. I don't know if that's necessarily true. But at this point, with everything that's happened, you know, there's it's very difficult to go back. And, you know, Israelis who want to have a Jewish majority state need to be much more clearly against the settlements and the occupation because it's literally doing the opposite of what they claim to want. Exactly. So I want to switch gears a bit and talk about your personal life again. So you lived in Israel for quite some time and then you recently moved back to the U.S. When when did you move back? Uh, we moved back. My partner and son and I moved in 2017 and we We moved because my partner's doing a PhD here in California. So are you planning to go back to Israel once he finishes his PhD? Well, that's the million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's really weird because my partner was born and raised in Israel. And, you know, he always jokes that I'm the Zionist in the family because I'm so connected to Israel, even though I wasn't born there. It's home for both of us. That's really where our home is. It's also where most of our families are. So we'll always be connected to there. But the question of whether we'll go back, it also has a lot to do with just our feeling on socioeconomic issues and where we feel like we can best do our careers. It's not just a question of emotions. But, you know, my heart and my my work is still very much based in Israel. So I, you know, I, I part of me really does want to go back. But in an ideal situation, I would somehow be able to kind of live half there and half elsewhere. How did you find the reintegration process? Oh, gosh. Um, It's funny because, you know, I live in California, Northern California now, um, in a small Uh town called Santa Cruz. And it's it's really beautiful here. It's like there's a redwood forest. It overlooks the Pacific Ocean. There's, you know, wildlife. And it's really beautiful. And it's quiet. And it's kind of the opposite of Israel. But I feel a little bit like an alien here because, you know, there aren't that many Jews in this community. And the ones that there are, I'm not really, you know, I'm not really, I don't go to synagogue and I'm not really into organized stuff. So I kind of feel very alone here. And, you know, as opposed to New York or Tel Aviv, this is um, not really a Jewish kind of place. And my work is so based on Middle Eastern politics and very few people here know a lot about it. There's amazing things here, but I feel, yeah, I feel like a, a very much a visitor. So, you know, I don't think, and also Northern California is so expensive. I, I don't see how we would 
continue to live here if we weren't students. <laughs> New York is so fucking expensive. It's like it's it's not even funny anymore. It's like you know the kind of taxes that we have to pay. I am so sick of that. But it's New York, so you love it, well, right? I um, don't actually. I have a love hate relationship with New York. I mean, really? yeah, and I haven't lived there since I was you know basically eighteen. I mean, I lived there like on and off a little bit, but. Yeah, I, I couldn't afford to live there either. I mean, so I, I don't know where we could afford to live, to be honest. I mean, I'm a journalist and he's a musician, so you can do the math. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you know this, but Tel Aviv is pretty much proportionately just as expensive as New York. It's absolutely crazy. Yes, I saw a documentary. They talked about how expensive Tel Aviv is, uh, which is crazy because when you think about expensive cities. I at least think about New York and San Francisco. And I never thought that Tel Aviv would be so expensive, but it is. Your son, how difficult was it for him to adjust? Because I know for kids, it's much more difficult to find friends and integrate in a new place. Oh, well, I mean, maybe that's the case when they're a little older, but he was uh, he was three when we moved here and he's now five and he has absolutely no problem. He has more friends than both of us. Too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's interesting is I actually spoke to him a bit of English when he was first born, thinking like we're in Israel, I should, you know, prop up his English. And then the minute we moved here, I tried to switch back to only Hebrew But both yeah. both my partner and I, you know, we kind of switch in and out. And within six months of moving here, my son started speaking only in English. So he understands Hebrew, but he won't speak so much Hebrew. And so I wonder, you know, what will happen with that? Because, you know, it is important for me that he does speak Hebrew. And, you know, it's I, I'm sure you maybe go through this with your kids as well. But it takes a lot of effort to really keep up a second language. It does. And in our household, it's not just one other language. It's like three other languages. When I have to explain something to them, I have to switch to English because if, if I speak Pashto, which I speak with them more frequently, it will take me much longer to explain what I'm trying to explain. I have friends who are second generation, grew up here, and they speak Urdu and Pashto fluently. And that gives me hope that our kids, when they grow up, they they will be able to speak multiple languages, which is which is a great thing. Yeah, I think that the first years of their life, the first five to ten, is really where it's it gets rooted, and then yeah, and then it's up to them to kind of keep it up. So, how often do you travel back and forth? I mean, you know, California is very far away from Israel. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, it's quite exhausting. But I I mean, I've been there a few times on my own for work. Uh, in April, I was there to cover the election that, you know, there's going to be apparently a third one in March. But, you know, I've been there a few times on my own. But we go as a family, uh, uh, you know, we've been there about once, you know, every year. So the, the last two years um, and we're going now again. And we try, you know, we try to stay connected, but it's it's actually been since last summer. So it's almost a year and a half that we haven't been as a family. Do you have siblings? Yeah, I have an older brother who's an artist who lives in New York. You know, I kind of got the Israel bug and he's very much a New Yorker. Wow. So before we wrap up this amazing interview, I always ask my guests to describe America in, I used to say in a word, but then my guests would just look at me and be like, how do we describe it in a word? So now I've changed it to, if you could describe it in in a sentence. I could probably do it in a word. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not an easy question. America is a very, very big place, but and I'm from the coast, so I don't know if I'm representative of that. I guess I'll just put it this way, which, 
you know, might be a little bit antagonistic. But, you know, when Trump was elected, my first reaction was, well, America deserves Trump. Uh Trump is kind of the representation of the, you know, kind of epitome of American culture, which is a culture of, you know, TV and Diet Coke and um, a lot of, you know, cheap rhetoric. So, of course, that's not the only the only description I would give, but that's one of them. For instance, in Israel, where the political landscape is much more, you know, narrow and there isn't as much opportunity for the left to gain political power, in America, at least, you have a very strong kind of growing political resistance to Trump. Yeah, um, exactly. So yeah. So, and, and that is because the veils have come off. Um, and hopefully that will lead to, uh, yeah, more changes. Thank you so much, Merav. And thank you for your time and, and safe travels. Thank you so much, Sadia. It was a real pleasure. I appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for taking the time out to listen, give us feedback. And if you like what you hear, please share. We have a GoFundMe. Details are on website and social media and also in the description. Until next time, when we bring another inspiring story. And in the meantime, stay connected.